Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And James, we are um, absolutely delighted to be joined uh, by today's guest, aren't we? Yeah, very special guest today. It is quite the thing. Some, yeah, quite the thing. It's it's yeah. Sir Max Hastings, um, who has dominated the narrative of the Second World War for the last. Well, I mean, I don't don't want to embarrass you, Max, but probably kind of forty years. Um, uh, <laughs> and you've now got rather excitingly, which just shows what a grandee you've become, because you now have a folio edition of um, of All Hell Let Loose, which is your kind of magnum opus on uh, your attempt to kind of tackle the entirety of the Second World War. Um, you're a brave. A man than me, um, but but um, for those who don't know, when, uh, a Folio Society book is is a kind of like a special hardback, and it usually comes with a sleeve and a, and a new introduction, um, and it's all very handsome, and it's a lovely thing to have on your bookshelf, um, and it's also a sign of um, <laughs> of your grandiness, I think, if uh, for want of a better phrase, Max. I, I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that, James. But uh, I'm always terribly flattered. They actually did one a few years ago, Bomber Command. Oh, did they? You're absolutely right. You were avoiding saying this, but it usually means you're probably dead if you get. Well, I, <laughs> but I was just going to say, of your books. It, it but, smells of posterity, doesn't it, Folio? But the, the, it the actually, what reminds one, and one of the extraordinary things, you guys are the sort of next generation behind me on the Second World War. But um, I published my first book on, on the Second World War, Bomber Command, in 1979, which is 40-something um, uh, years ago. And I would never have guessed in those days that we would all be writing and selling, frankly, in enormous numbers, uh, books about the conflict. And it is an extraordinary reflection of the fascination that it still commands with this huge worldwide audience. But um, the, the great thing is that um, we've moved on. I mean, I've just uh, been uh, bro- broadcasting a tribute to uh, Corelli Barnett, the oh, yes. um, historian who died very recently, and a Cambridge historian. And Bill Barnett, at whose feet I sat, uh, uh, sort of figuratively and almost literally, because I was a researcher on a BBC series in the 60s, on which Bill was one of the scriptwriters. And Bill was one of the first iconoclastic historians. Yes. But... Um, I grew up in a very nationalistic age of history writing that all our parents' generation had been in the Second World War and they didn't want anybody raining on the parade. They didn't want anybody saying anything nasty. And 
um, my father sincerely believed not only that the British had won the Second World War, but that the Americans were just out there providing the chewing gum and the Russians were somewhere in the East and missed doing God knows what. And um, so we had this picture um, that it was, it was the Brits what done it. And uh, when Bill Barnett was one of the first to say, well, maybe the British Army wasn't so wonderful, maybe Montgomery wasn't quite such a brilliant general as people said, Bill took a tremendous amount of flack uh, from all over the place. But what I felt I learned from Bill is we've got to try and look at all history, but especially that of the Second World War, objectively. And that doesn't mean um, that you, you you don't have to be an iconoclast, where you don't have to um, start saying, oh, well, there weren't any heroes and uh, um, the British were rubbish and so on. So well, it's not like that. It's just a matter of trying to see some of the nuances. And I was always terribly impressed when I was young by my mother saying, um, she said, I'm absolutely sick of having to sit in this house and listen to your father and your great uncle <laughs> and your cousin banging on about what a wonderful time they had on the war. Um, she said the war was hell. She said it was uh, pure misery. And she said, forget about the heroics. She said the separations and um, the privations and the blackout for all those years and so on. Um, she said it was a miserable time, especially for women. And one of the things we all do now, um, you guys do, and I do, and Anthony Beaver does, and our generation of historians, um, where we understand things, that it ain't just all about the SAS. It ain't just all <laughs> about, um, about um, the 7th Armored Division in the desert and all the great stuff. Of course, that's part of the story. But we've learned to see um, an awful lot of the rest of the story, particularly about women, um, particularly about the role of the of the British Empire and other empires in the Second World War, and the fact that not all of them uh, regarded the triumph of Britain as a great thing if they remained um, subjects of the British Empire. Well, um, I mean, I've, I've, I, I very recently reread Nemesis, which I read when you first published it, and I guess that must be sort of um, 10 years ago now, something like that. Oh, then 15 years, yeah. 15 years even. Well, yeah. I, you know, and I, 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 I recently reread it, and... And and it reminded me how I mean I, I always sort of think with your writing and I think this comes through in All Hell Let Loose as well is there is a sort of a simmering anger in your writing at the fate of the civilians these poor people who just get caught up in this sort of typhoon of war and I have always thought that comes across very very clearly your your concern and your empathy with the civilian experience of war and you know from a personal point of view i'm you know i'm I, i've i've tackled most of the italian campaign from sicily to the last war the last year of the war but i've never done the bit in between so i'm now doing you know f from the invasion of of southern italy to the fall of rome and a big part of what i'm doing is is looking at what happened to the poor old Italians who were caught up in this? And, and you're absolutely right. You know, when you look at look at accounts of from the 1960s, for example, you'd be forgiven for thinking there weren't any Italian civilians in Italy at all while this was all raging. And James, I'm sure you've already come across the stories of what the Moroccan troops. Of course, yes. I interviewed someone who was. I was interviewed by someone who gang raped. And um, this is stuff that nobody was told about in the old days. And it's not that. Not for a minute do any of us, do you or me, or want to take away from the real heroism of the guys at the sharp end. But um, one for, for every one soldier in uniform who was an active participant, there were um, hundreds who were just victims. And um, I mean, one of the things that I suppose I was middle-aged before I understood, across Europe, if you were a woman in the Second World War, or in any, in any war, it's the plight of a woman, you're completely at the mercy 
of a teenager with a gun, whether it's a German or a Russian or, dare I say it, a Brit or American. And if they decide to behave appallingly, and as the French colonial troop did behave appallingly in Italy, well, it, that, this has to be part of the story. And um, the, these are all the stuff that we, um, I'm also fascinated, and I've written a lot about this in uh, All Hell Let Loose, by the issue of food that I'm sure you're familiar with Lizzie, Collin, uh, Lizzie Collingham's. Yeah, yes, book, absolutely. Yeah. Which made a great impact on me about the taste of war ago. or whatever it was the called. The taste yeah. of war, exactly. Yeah. And Lizzie Collingham, one was vaguely aware of this, but she inked in a hell of a lot of detail about the, the vital role of food, that thinking about food and being hungry was something, and of course it was so different from country to country, in that in Britain everybody moaned about the food and how dreary it was and how boring, but nobody starved. Um, well, actually, nobody... I mean, Max, the interesting thing about food in this country and rationing in this in this country was it was incre yeah. incredibly pragmatic, the approach. The approach was, instead of allowing people to hoard and some people live off bread and dripping, we're yeah. going to make sure that everyone gets a balanced diet. Then you have less people off, for, off, off work with sickness. Then your production goes up. But, um, but... So it might have been a bit boring. But but at least everyone got enough. I mean, no one had ever been been fitter, than, you know, from a, from a waistline yeah. point of view, and everyone was fine. Do, do you think that this perspective though comes from the fact that the land war never came to Britain? That our, our national experience of the war is is, is necessarily an inevitably at an arm's length because armies didn't come through here, and this is how we were a, our yeah. history was able to detach itself, and and why our attitude to the war. And did to, to the United States. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I, seems I think you're absolutely dead right. And I think in particular, one thing that's very striking is uh, there was an enormous, there were a lot of jokes in Britain in the Second World War, jokes about the Germans, especially jokes about stormtroopers parachuting into the orchard and all this sort of stuff. And no coward. You don't find any of that sort of stuff in France or Holland or Belgium or Yugoslavia. That's a or really Greece, interesting point. The countries that were occupied and um, I'm, one's always amused. There's a, a very witty, I've quoted it in all hell that there's very witty account of an invasion alert um, in a Wiltshire village uh, by A.G. Street. Yes, um, just down the road uh, from in me. 19, in 1940. And, um, and they all were laughing about the fact that having stood to all night and all the shepherds wondering if they um, could be allowed to go back their flocks and so on. And it, the, the story, that particular chapter ended... Um, with um, one of these yokels saying to Arthur Street in his narrative, he say, ah, he said, um, um, them Germans never do what they say they're going to do or something of that kind. And anyway, it was a, the whole point is that this passage about the invasion threat, it was all treated as a joke. And I think this is why you get so much more British and American humour about the war. So I think you've touched on something enormously important, the fact that we escaped occupation. And it goes, let me go beyond that, um, that um, a few years ago, I was having dinner in Paris with um, a French intellectual. In, in England, you'd be laughed out of court if anybody called themselves intellectual. But in France, it's a respectable profession. And he was a man called uh, Georges Liebo, a very bright guy. And... He's, his wife, actually, um, was the director of the Musée d'Orsay. And George said at dinner, he said, of course, the real point about you British is that you people expect to succeed in things. And he said, we, the French, we don't. We're accustomed to failure. 
And I said, well, it doesn't quite often seem like that to us. But he said, you think about history. He said, you think about history since the days of Napoleon. He said, most of our history is about losing things and about failing at things. And you people expect to succeed. Well, I hadn't thought about that before, but this is obviously important in the context of the Second World War, but it's also important in the context of, of history at large, that of what one's expectations are. And all those numbers, I mean, I can still always surprise an audience, and I've used a lot of statistics and all hell let loose, and you, you know, you use them too. You, we all do it now. But um, if you ask an audience, even an intelligence audience, to guess the percentage of casualties in the Second World War that were British or American, and they basically come up with figures like about 20 or 30 percent. They can hardly believe how tiny a fraction of a percent um, um, that British and American casualties were by comparison with Yugoslav losses or Greek losses or everybody else's. Well, well that's the passage in your book that abs- when I had a refresher today that absolutely struck, struck me this morning. Um, 65% of all Allied military deaths are Soviet, 23% are China, Yugoslavia 3%, the USA and Britain 2% each, France and Poland 1% each. It's absolutely extraordinary. It it is. There there is a caveat to that, though. Yeah, well, of course. The the, the caveat is is that Britain and America, because they were able to, because of their global reach and because of industrialisation and mechanisation and technology, were able to use steel, not flesh, to a very successful degree. And what that meant was, you know, you have Second Army in North Northwest Europe, of which only 14% are infantry, 8% are in tanks, and 43% are service corps. So you've got a very long tail. It's what I call big war. Uh, and, you know, th- that is very... That's broadly a sensible approach and... and um, uh, 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 very efficient for the most part. The flip side of that is if you happen to be infantry or if you uh, you happen to be in that 14% yeah. of a very small number anyway and you happen to be in that 8% in the army, your chances of getting through unscathed are worse than they were in 1914 to 1918. It's just that there's fewer of you. But, but of course, in, our, in, in the narrative, we focus on the kinetic bit, the fighting bit. So all yeah. our narrative is about jumping out of landing craft and, you know, Bursting through through um, hedgerows and and you know going across the Reichswald, uh, and that's where so so it skews those who are reading about it to think that gosh we must be so infantry heavy and armoured heavy when actual fact the, the biggest proportion of troops in the army are driving trucks and and, and service troops. The, um, uh, one of the most profound remarks I ever had made to me was made by my own daughter when she was a teenager, and she said, "Daddy, life's what you're used to." Now, that sounds a rather banal thing to say, but if you think about it, it's terribly important that uh, all the people who, during the Second World War, were moaning in Britain about how lousy the food was. Um, the whole idea, if you'd said to them, but in Leningrad, uh, the, the defenders of Leningrad are eating each other, they're resorting to cannibalism, or that in China they're eating grass, this would have actually meant nothing to people in Britain because they didn't know the people in China. They didn't know uh, the people in Leningrad. And so this business of how difficult it is, and the same goes with the infantry, that now they're all dead, we can have this discussion fairly freely. But when the veterans were alive, um, some of the things we're talking about now, um, some of the guys who were at the sharp end and suffered terrible casualties and went through Normandy and all the rest of it, they were outraged when they heard... Um, young whippersnappers like us, or relatively young whippersnappers as we were then, saying things like we're saying, because all they knew was they'd had one hell of a ghastly war, 
and that um, they'd seen an awful lot of their friends killed. And, um, and it's, it's, it, it's, it's trying to, I think what we're all trying to do all the time, it, there are no great revelations. As soon as I see a book being published about the Second World War that says it's uncovered some stupendous revelation, yes, you know I'm it's trying to a bit because yeah. you know it's false. What we, what we are trying to do is to get a better perspective on it, is to see things in perspective. But part of this is to understand and to sympathize with all those people. And, um, I mean, one of my stories, which um, made a huge impression on me, um, a, a woman um, called Edith Gabor, Hungarian woman, um, who I interviewed one day in New York, Queens. This is about 20-something years ago. And I had my wife with me um, because she'd been in New York with me. And um, Edith Gabor was a lovely little Hungarian woman who came up to about my waist. Um, and she described for four hours to us her experiences in a succession of death counts. And uh, all her family, except one brother, died in the counts. Uh, and after we'd finished, uh, I, I'd arranged a cab to take us to Kennedy to get a plane back to London. And... Uh, I stood on the sidewalk waiting for the cab and it didn't come. And after about 20 minutes, I started jumping up and down and saying, <laughs> look, if this goddamn cab doesn't come, we're going to miss the flight to London. And Edith Gabor came and stood beside us on the pavement and she threw back her head and she said, she laughed and she said, forget it. She said, it's not important. She said, it's not worth getting worked up about it. She said, <laughs> when you've been to death camp, you get to see that missing an aeroplane really doesn't count for much. <laughs> we were, She's got a very we good were, point. <laughs> we were so humbled. I felt ashamed of myself then because my behavior reflected this sort of 21st century. We expect things to go our way. We expect yeah. to be able to get the plane from Kennedy. We expect to be able to do this, that, and the other. And she reminded one of this critically important truth about perspective, perspective about what that generation have been through, and in particular what other nations and other societies, and especially the Jews, have been through. And this is the message that all of us here, we're all, on the one hand, we're trying to understand ourselves, and second, we're trying to convey to new generations of readers and listeners. Absolutely. Amen to that. Absolutely. And I think it's very interesting, Max, because... You, you know, there was this this worry that that uh, the readership was was an elderly readership of the Second World War, and and yeah. that you know it would die out, and no one would be interested. In it. You know, what's been really interesting about doing this podcast is that actually our biggest 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 age group is I think thirty four to thirty eight or something, and the average age of listeners is forty two. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know how much you looked around when you were at We Have Ways Fest, but but there were groups of twenty something friends and thirty something friends who'd come as a bunch of friends together, and they were very much younger people. Yeah. Um, th there's, um, and they come to the subject with a different set of assumptions as well. They're, yeah. um, they're, not, they're not like me who grew up in the 70s with The Great Escape on the television every bank holiday yeah. Monday and, and, and the, the sort of tail end of that tales of glory thing, even though the military in itself in the 70s was sort of not regarded uh, with the prestige it then gained after the Falklands War, of course. There's that there was that peculiar time of war films, but the army seen as sort of uh, not not glamorous at all. And I grew up that that's the those are the assumptions I grew up with. These youngsters are coming in, or when I say youngsters, these people in their twenties, they're they're coming in knowing, acknowledging the imperial element to all this that was very much put to one side 
uh, in previous decades. And they're very much looking at it from that perspective. They want to know about the, the contribution of women. They want to know about the sort of uh, the full the, the full effect of the war rather than the sharp end stuff, which is really interesting because, you know, I very much come from the tanks are exciting um, uh, generation, <laughs> for want of a better way of putting it. Well, the, um, I, th- I think one thing about the young's fascination with it is because they've never been exposed to danger and they've never, or extreme danger, and they've never been exposed to extreme um, um, the discomfort in that way, that everybody tends to feel fascinated to ask themselves, how would I behave if I found yeah, myself I in that situation? Right. And um, I mean, I, there was an advertisement, I'm sure you two know about this. Um, in the First World War, um, the uh, Germans placed an advertisement in American newspapers in about 1916 um, um, saying, Americans, if you are thinking of joining uh, the First World War, well, they didn't call it the First World War, joining the war in Europe, um, then, and you want to have some idea what it's like, uh, dig a hole in your garden, half fill it with water, um, live in it for a week or two uh, with nothing to eat, and hire a maniac to fire machine guns at you. And then you may begin to have some inkling of what it's like. Uh, one of the things I, I found from my own experience with armies, we are all this morning, I hope, um, uh, well-fed and comfortable and warm enough and uh, uh, not wet and our feet are okay and so on and so forth. But the lesson I learned from all the days I spent uh, trooping around battlefields around the world was that... Um, Almost all battles, first of all, they're fought at night. Therefore, when you're absolutely exhausted, when you're either roasting or you're half frozen to death, when you haven't, got, haven't, haven't had enough to eat, when you haven't done enough to drink. And because, um, I suppose, in that sense, I was never a proper soldier, but I did spend a bit of time uh, with the with total lack of distinction with the Territorial Army Parachute Regiment attached to a regular battalion. And one did discover on exercises... I discovered, first of all, how I personally, at the age of 17, found it almost impossible to hack it. Um, and secondly, you just learnt this lesson of what it felt like to be sleepwalking your way through everything you were doing. And um, and again, in the Falklands, um, that one did get that sense uh, at night sometimes. Uh, God, you know, when you there were 16 hours of darkness in the Falklands. And I remember one night in particular on top of Mount Kent, how it was far too cold to sleep, and you just shivered all night, praying for the dawn. And all this, because it didn't go on that long, this was nothing compared with what the people at the sharp end went through in the Second World War. Nothing. And one would never pretend none of the wars I'd been to in my own lifetime uh, could be compared. The Americans have got this idea in their head that uh, Vietnam was the worst experience for the infantry soldier. It wasn't. It was nothing like as bad as Normandy. I mean, the scale of casualties and so on. Um, but you you learn just enough to understand just how hellish it is. And furthermore, um, although I said earlier that I think how important it is that our generation of writers and broadcasters is addressing all these issues of victims of women and so on, at the same time, one's always remembering one's respect, one's admiration for um, the heroes. And there were a lot of heroes. There were people, partly because they were able to overcome they were no stronger or bigger or much older than, than I was in the days when I used to go to wars. And yet, because I've seen a bit of it, I understand what it, uh, what it, what it took 
to yeah. be brave because most people are not brave. And to be the guy who got out of the trench and kept advancing when everybody else stayed in the trench. Well, you're absolutely right. It's you know, it's 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 those those platoon sergeants, isn't it? It's the platoon commanders, yeah. the company commanders. You know, you're 23. Your major, you know, your major Max Hastings in command yeah. of the, you know, the, I don't know, the airships or whatever, second battalion of the air, whatever it might be. And and you know, just think of the awesome responsibility on your shoulders. You know, you're you're absolutely knackered. You're you're basically barely out of home <laughs> suddenly you're flung into this completely alien environment as you say it's pouring with rain it's freezing cold it's broilingly hot i, I mean I mean, if you look at the sort of baydecker guide of of 1933 or something for, for southern italy and sicily it says whatever you do don't don't travel in sicily in july and august under any circumstances <laughs> then, then, then you know of course that's exactly what they do they all pour in yeah. um you know think about those tin helmets with kind of 38 degrees centigrade heat of sun kind pounding down on you and all the dust and the malaria and you know that's before anyone's actually fired a shot at you and then you've got to command men you've got to make decisions upon which the lives of your men depend i mean it's 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 incomprehensible james i want to tell you a little story uh, which is a stupid story about the difficulties people have today about understanding um what real war is like at the sharp end um batman it's a word, I mean, an awful lot of people in the modern age don't even know what a batman is. A batman was the personal servant of an officer. And people fall about these days laughing at the idea that officers were considered entitled in the field in the Second World War to have their batman um, who would dig their slit trench and prepare their food and clean their kit and uh, look after their weapons for them. And people say today, what are we thinking of? This terrible class divide that officers were given Batman. But actually, this was a completely rational, sensible thing to happen because officers in the field are so up to their neck in the huge responsibilities of commanding a platoon or a company or a battalion. They don't have time to prepare their food or dig their trench. They are better employed going around their positions, sighting their machine guns, uh, doing all the stuff that officers have to do. And uh, Batman were absolutely critical. And I always remember um, uh, dear old Bill Deeds, who was my predecessor of the Daily Telegraph, and who was an officer in the King's Royal Rifle Corps in Northwest Europe. And he said, uh, uh, one was absolutely, he said, as a, a, a company commander in Northwest Europe, he said, uh, I was sleepwalking my way through, but I, I had so much to do uh, as an officer, as a company commander, that I jolly well needed somebody. If I was going to eat at all, somebody else had got to put the food in my hand. But nowadays, I've talked to modern um, senior army officers, and they say, of course, this is the logical. If we still live in the logical world, then senior commanders would still be allowed um, somebody to get their food ready. But of course, in the modern world in which we live, in Afghanistan or in Iraq or whatever, it's unthinkable socially to allow um, officers to, to have personal servants. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in a second. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth lath lines with Juvederm Velour XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In depth. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to Max Hastings. You met so many people um, uh, uh, over the years, put, uh, assembling your books, researching your books, and coming to your conclusions about history. Why were people fighting? What what made them what made them get out of their slip trench and lead a charge? What were they fighting for? Well, there's so much I could say. So much. One particular remark which has made a great impression on me: the great Australian war correspondent Alan Moorhead. Um, He wrote a a, a brilliant piece in 1942 um, uh, after uh, Churchill had visited Eighth Army in North Africa. And Churchill um, had gone round, he wrote in a letter to Clementine at home. He said, I'm trying to visit every uh, unit in this great army and to tell them uh, what glory may be theirs if they play their part in the coming offensive. Well, Alan Moorhead wrote, and I thought this was a brilliantly perceptive remark, He said what the prime minister, for all his genius, didn't understand was that most of these men doing the fighting, they weren't the least interested in winning Victoria Crosses or military medals or whatever. They wanted to be told, and Churchill was incapable of telling them what sort of Britain they were going to come back to after the war. They yearned to be given um, some sort of objectives to feel they were going back to a better world. Churchill's mind, Smut said, uh, the, the South African leader, very vividly, Smuts said, he said, Winston's mind uh, has a stop in it at the end of the war. All Churchill could think of, which was at the heart of his genius as a war leader, was how to win the war. But he didn't think about what followed. And yet those men out there, they had to believe it was terribly important to them to risk their lives, to feel they were risking it for something better than they come from. Because um, Britain in the 1930s, um, under a conservative government, uh, had not been a very wonderful place, especially if you lived up north. Um, as for what people fight for, it's always the same in every war. You fight because um, um, most people who were um, half-decent soldiers, uh, they want to do their bit to avoid letting down their mates. And that's always the same. They don't think about the big issues. They don't think much about Winston Churchill. And they don't think, they, they knew nothing about Jews, of course, in those days, most people. They knew nothing about so all they thought about was the unit and if possible to survive. That was their highest. So many soldiers wrote, very moving, both at the time and after, that the highest good. In fact, a, a Russian uh, officer I've quoted, I think, in all hell let loose, wonderful man, uh, uh, Yevgeny, I forget his surname, but wonderful man whom I interviewed. And of course, that was the great privilege. One was able to interview all these people uh, 20, 30 years ago. And he said... He said with Gennady, that was his first name, lovely man. But he said, you have to understand, he said, in those days, human life had absolutely no meaning at all. He said, all that mattered was to survive yourself. And he spoke with such passion. Um, and of course, he was part of the Red Army, part of the, but his stories about what happened and his stories about uh, 
Um, yes, that dreadful indifference to losses and so on that prevailed in the culture of the Red Army, which of course still prevails to this day. Um, I'm afraid it is, it is the, the Russian army has sometimes done brilliant things, but it is an unbelievably brutalized army. It's been the same in Chechnya. It's been the same in Afghanistan. It's always the same. And um, one of my, let's say, bolder assertions, which used to enrage um, British veterans when I said it when they were still alive, was that how we'd ever have won if it hadn't been for the Red Army taking most of the losses, I do not know, because somebody had to do an awful lot of dying uh, in order to uh, bring Hitler's empire to its knees. And it was the Russians who overwhelmingly did the bulk of the dying, not to mention the killing. Yeah, well, they do most of the dying, but they don't do most of they don't absorb most of um, most of German resources. So I suppose, that, you know, it, it depends on which way you're coming at it. But I mean, one of the things I think is so, so you know, your long career writing about the Second World War is that you you've you've met wonderful people like that Russian soldier you've just met, um, and you know Hungarian Jews and and so on. But you've also met you know you were at a stage where some of the commanders were still alive, and yeah. I, you know I love the fact that you met um, Air Chief Marshals Arthur Harris. I mean, not half. Yeah. What, what what a thing. I mean, what, do, I mean, <laughs> you know, your your Alan R link to Arthur Harris. So so what well, was I, he like? I spent I spent hours with Harris. And what did you think uh, this of him? Is back in. Uh, you've got to remember, when I wrote Bomber Command, uh, Harris had never heard of me. All he knew was that I said, and I, I feel a bit ashamed when I admit this, I wrote him a letter saying I felt there was an awful lot about this Bomber Command story that hadn't been told, and would he see me? And I spent four or five hours with him, I suppose, and he was still very hale and hearty in those days. Mm. And, of course, he spoke with great passion. But, um, but yeah, people do say... Um, uh, enormously interesting things stick in your mind from all these years ago um, that uh, another uh, senior airman whom I interviewed for Bomber Command was Rafe Cochran who commanded oh, yes, of course, five five, group. Yep. Uh, Bomber Command's five group yep. and I said what sort of chap was Guy Gibson and he thought for a moment and then he said uh, he was the sort of young man who would have been head of the school in any public school um, and I thought that was a very interesting remark because Heads of the school are very often not very popular or lovable people. Well, and also in Guy Gibson's uh, case, he uh, absolutely wasn't. He was, you know, that's he was also B, true. B stream it, and second 11. No, wasn't but he? on the other hand, it, where Cochrane was right, that in character, he was he was very much that type, Gibson. Yeah, yes, yes. And all this, and um, I remember the shock I also got when I interviewed some humble air gunner who served under Gibson, who hated him, as many of them did. And he said he was sort of a bugger who was always jumping out from behind a hut and telling you your butts were undone. <laughs> and, um, and so you get the real point, and I think this is very important. Um, there are some historians whom I respect, notably including Hugh Strawn, who have no time at all for oral history. Um, and I think they're wrong to dismiss it. Hugh is very much, he's a brilliant academic historian. But yeah, no, he no, works. Now, where I totally agree with you. I don't think you can take as gospel any hard factual information um, about any war uh, by veterans, especially because old men, we all get very confused in our memories. I mean, God, I find when I'm talking to fellow you know, people who are in the Falklands with me and their memories of episodes are completely different from mine. 
And it's not that any of us are knowingly lying. It's just after the interval of 40 years, you forget stuff and you imagine stuff. And this is what happened. And, so, and you've read stuff and that, that starts so, to inform exactly. the memories. So the, but the point is, so I would never, I, I think some historians are much too credulous. I won't name any names, but some historians who, who do books exclusively based on, all, on oral history, um, I think they allow themselves to believe things that old men and women say that, one knows immediately from one's own knowledge is simply not true, but they write them down because these old people have said them. Yeah. And I think this is idiotic. But on the other hand, once you get a priceless sense, you do get the sort of um, um, the scent and the feel of war from those veterans. And they say things, they say extraordinary things that, uh, I mean, I remember once um, uh, talking to uh, Montgomery's chief of intelligence, a wonderful man, Bill Williams, who yes. was an Oxford academic Amazing. in uniform. And Bill Williams said to me, and this was about, oh, God, I don't know, um, uh, 1983. I was interviewing him for a book on, on uh, Overlord, book on Normandy. And he said, he said, you know, one of the extraordinary things about uh, the war, he said, uh, he said, we all hated doing it. Uh, he said, I was an Oxford academic who'd been shoved into uniform and I was now masquerading as a brigadier. But um, I, he said, I only had one idea in my head to get this whole ghastly thing over and get back to my proper life. But he said, sometimes when we were interviewing um, captured Germans, we sometimes got this sort of crazy feeling that they didn't mind doing this. <laughs> and, um, he said, in particular, he said, I, he said, I remember... He said, I remember interviewing a couple of captured German officers um, in Normandy. And I said to them, this is Bill Williams talking. He said, uh, I said, well, why are you guys keeping going with this thing that you've lost? It's all over. Um, that, that This is uh, all wasted motion. And a lot of people are dying for nothing and so on. And, so on. and he said, uh, these two men, he said, they simply clicked their heels and they stood upright. And he said, they said, because it is our duty. And as long as it is the high map, homeland. Uh, we will uh, keep the fight going for it and so on and so on. And, um, and Bill Williams said, he said, it was so dispiriting, he said, talking to these guys and feeling they were prepared to keep this thing going to the bitter end, as, of course, they bloody did. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and so all I'm really saying is, um, of course, from the sort of book, books that uh, we've recorded, you've recorded some of this stuff, a lot of this stuff, um, um, as, if you keep going at this rate, you'll about you'll have outperformed me. But um, but uh, you know I've written I've written down some of this stuff. But nonetheless, one cherishes whenever I sit down to write about the Second World War, indeed about any war. I'm remembering odd moments like that with people and the things they've said. Yes, and they're very illuminating, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, I I think I've interviewed over three hundred veterans, and and they have been you know obviously. Most uh, predominantly British, but but you know Germans. I've interviewed Maori. I've interviewed you know South Africans. I interviewed a Zulu once. You know, um, so so and Germans, of course, and SS and and all sorts. Um, and I always found found that that there was a real value, but you could always tell the ones that weren't of any value very quickly. You know, because you, you they suddenly were telling you something that you know they've just read in a book. I, and I never really wanted them to tell me the story of the war. I wanted to tell. I wanted them to tell me about their own experience, and so I used to try and keep it. So you know, tell me about your childhood and your parents, and warm them up and all that kind of stuff. And then I'd ask them about you know what they thought of their uniforms and what they thought of their weaponry and all this sort of stuff. And and 
you're not asking them to remember specific battles or specific dates or, or uh, give an account of the Battle of Britain. You're asking them for, for little moments and little exactly, uh, uh, exactly. And, and, and emotions and, and emotional responses, which they can only get by remembering them. Uh, and, and I felt that was sort of that was less likely be, to be distorted by the by the passage of time. And, and it's interesting because the book I'm doing now, I'm trying to make it about between 70 and 80% entirely from contemporary accounts, whether that be letters, diaries or, you know, reports or whatever. I do miss the opportunity to talk to people and ask yeah. them things which I can no longer ask them and I haven't got answers for because, yeah. you know, they've all gone or they're too old to be able to provide those questions. And that, that that's a, both a sadness and a frustration. But you, another moment, there was a wonderful man whom I almost worshipped uh, uh, because I, I'm sure you find the same. Um, one used to fall in love with some of these veterans because they yeah. were so, so wonderful. And one of them I fell in love with was a guy called Andrew Wilson, who was a tank officer in Normandy, wrote a rather oh, good yes, memoir. Oh, yes, the flamethrower. Flamethrower, exactly. Yeah, yeah. brilliant, Andrew, brilliant book. Andrew Wilson, who was superbly vivid witness, and he told wonderful, wonderful stories to me. But one of the things he said, which stuck in my mind, uh, he said, um, in Normandy with my tank crew, I discovered a love between men, which is impossible in Anglo-Saxon society in peacetime. Um, and uh, one what exactly what, he, what exactly what he meant. Um, and of course, in those days, he wasn't thinking about gays or anything like that. He was just thinking about and this thing, um, which is a very real force, and one should never mock. It's so easy to mock some of these things. In wars, people do discover a love between men, uh, which had nothing whatever to do with sex or to do with uh, homosexuality or anything else. Um, and it, it's completely... And in fact, curiously It's, it's enough, intense camaraderie, isn't it? That's what we're talking it, it's, about. It's, it's a, it, but it's a passion. And in fact, oddly enough, my dear friend Michael Hyatt, the historian, mm. who was himself gay, and Michael talked to me very frankly about his own life, both as a gay and as a Coldstream Guards officer in Italy. And one of the things uh, Michael, I was fascinated by, he showed me a letter. Um, he wrote a letter some years ago now to the, because of course he was a very distinguished academic, and he wrote a letter to the Permanent Undersecretary at the Ministry of Defence saying that he was very cautious, speaking as both a gay and a veteran, about uh, permitting uh, get, um, open gayness uh, anywhere near the forward areas, because he said nobody knew better than himself with his extraordinary experience that it was absolutely vital that comradeship was not sullied by any sexual element at all. And um, I greatly admired, I admired Michael for many reasons, but I admired him for for um, writing such a letter in uh, in in that because he understood so much uh, from his own experience that uh, it's a very interesting little sideline, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it absolutely yeah, is. I re I remember him showing me this letter he'd written to his parents. Um, he I think he was, if I remember rightly, he was wounded at Salerno, but but he rejoined just after the fall of Rome, and they were in they were in Tuscany and they were approaching Florence. And in this letter, he says, you know, we came across this little, this little hamlet, this collection of farmhouses and buildings on a ridge line. And in the distance, you could see this village, um, you know, uh, maybe a mile or two away, and you could see the, the terracotta roofs. And beyond that was Imprunetta. And in the distance was, was Florence, white against the blue of the rising Apennines. And we all thought, gosh, we've got to get there. 
then we've got to get through those mountains again. And I remember kind of 55 years later, 65 years later, having that letter, going to that exact same spot and seeing the same view. And, and it was because the view was exactly the same that I know that I was in the right place. And it was the most fabulous connection to the past, to the present. It was really, really extraordinary. I mean, he was, he was incredible. I mean, I, I, know, I know what a dear friend he was to you and to, to Anthony as well. And you were a literary executor and, and a neighbour. And, uh, you know, he was um, one of your great sort of um, a friend and hero. But I've got to say he was incredibly good to me as well. He, was, he could not have been more helpful when I was first doing my first book on him. But he was a profoundly... The real thing about um, another t- thing I think you would probably share... Um, my experience of this, that um, because wars are mostly fought by very young men, yeah. um, nowadays women as well, but nonetheless very young people of both sexes, that in the nature of being young, you tend not to be very reflective. And therefore, an enormous amount of the documentation and the memoirs and the diaries and so on of the Second World War and indeed everything um, tell you an awful lot about what people did and where they went but much less about what they thought because the nature of being, uh, it's the nature of being very young. You're just not very reflective. And therefore one is enormously grateful when you come across something um, that is, uh, that is uh, really reflective and you think, and um, I was enormously, uh, I'm one of the most important influences on my uh, first world war two book, Bomber Command was um, that I tried to contact a, um, pilot I'd heard about uh, called Dennis Hornsey. Um, and I managed to get hold of, uh, the, I rang his home number, which I got from somebody. And one said, well, I'm afraid Dennis is dead. Um, and I'm his widow, although they've been divorced before, before he died. But she said, um, he did leave an unpublished memoir. And uh, would you like to read it? <laughs> and, uh, well, of course, I was absolutely mesmerized. And this book, God, it had an effect on me. Because remember, I was pretty young then when yep. I read it. it he'd entitled it, um, Here Today, Bomb Tomorrow. Um, and it was a very long memoir detailing everything that had happened. Mm. And essentially, to put it in simple terms, he joined the RAF with um, romantic ideas and trained as a pilot and thought, uh, gosh, this is going to be wonderful. And everything that happened to him after he got near an operational squadron was a nightmare. Because, um, first of all, he was terrified all the time. And secondly, uh, he found, and he wrote about all this in excruciating detail. Um, And secondly, uh, he wasn't a very good pilot. And uh, (laughs) after after his first couple of sorties, his crew demanded, I think he was flying a Whitley then, uh, his crew demanded uh, to be given another pilot because they said they had no confidence in flying the rest of their tour with this guy. God. And um, he he went on and he um, and he somehow staggered through. In the end, he was shot down uh, over uh, uh, over Holland. And amazingly, he evaded and he got back to England. And uh, he was awarded a DFC as you usually were for a successful escape and so on and so forth. But the point about this was what I was found mesmerising about this manuscript was uh, was that he'd written in such detail about his own state of almost abject terror. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, every time, every day, uh, uh, you know, he said those terrible, um, interminable hours before you took off. 
And, uh, and by the same token, uh, Jock Colville and his superlative war memoir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and Jock Colville, had, had, much against Churchill's wishes, having been served in Downing Street, Jock Colville uh, became trained as a fighter pilot and did a few ops as a fighter pilot. But one day he was forced landed at a bomber command airfield and um, he said he was fantastically struck as a fighter pilot by the contrast between the gung-ho attitude uh, prevailing in his own squadron and among all these young pilots and the incredibly serious, grave faces of those young men as they went out to the dispersals to take off. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that too, and here was Jock Colville who was there and who was, and he just said, he, he went home a very thoughtful man yeah. Um, after seeing these bomber command crews, because he realised that, of course, their casualty yeah, rates yeah. were uh, yeah. were appalling, and he realised that um, there weren't that many gung ho. Um, that you, I mean, sure, you put a brave face on it for, um, but um, I mean, again, when I wrote Operation Chastise about the Dambusters raid, and I was so struck by the sister of one of the pilots, um, um, Hopgood, John Hopgood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how on his last leave at home, he was so serious and um, he wouldn't talk at all about what he was doing. Because of course, it was top secret, but he just played the piano for hours, which she said he did brilliantly well. But what she was struck by was his gravity and his seriousness and so on. And of course, Hopgood was killed on the downbusters. Yes, he was. But, yeah. um, but um, again, one looks back. And some of those idiotic memoirs that, that I read, perhaps you did too, when I was young, when I was a schoolboy, and I read hordes of these gung-ho memoirs yep. of, of um, what fun it all was. And my father talking about what a wonderful time he'd had and how he found the only way to deal, they found to deal with captured German officers was removing their jackboots, after which they were cut down. So, and all these stupid things. that you. And I suppose in a way, I've spent... The whole of my professional life was a writer and student at the Second World War, sort of growing up. Yep. Um, and but tell learning. me, Max. I mean, the, the, that memoir that you just mentioned, where the where the, the Whitley pilot. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you ever publish it? I mean, what? Have no, you he could. It was. And I don't think it. I, I think perhaps they could find a publisher for it now, uh, because um, because. But it was such a gloomy document. Um, I don't God, think, I think it would great. get an audience now. I mean, particularly with a with an introduction yeah. by you. Well, um, it was. No, but I'll tell you what happened. That a while ago, they, he that Hornsey published a. Um, I begged his family when I gave them back the manuscript. And remember, in those days, there were no photocopiers, so mm, yeah. or not serious ones. So I hadn't photocopied the manuscript, and I begged them to give it to him for a war museum. Well, recently I wrote an introduction for a new edition of a book he wrote about his escape, um, The Pilot Walked Home. And I was in touch with Hornsey's family. And I said, well, what happened to this manuscript? And there was some um, family disagreement. Oh, God. Um, and there was some, and uh, the, the daughter I was talking to, she did said she didn't know what had happened to the manuscript, but it had certainly never gone to the Imperial War Museum. And it's a, a tragedy if it didn't, because um, uh, I thought it was a very important document. Uh, and uh, and one felt for this man. And in the end, he killed himself in about 1955. Oh. Um, and he was somebody who uh, never got over the experience of the war. And I think what had happened to him, he'd gone into it with such romantic illusions. Yep. And his wife worked on... Um, 
on a fashion magazine. Uh, in fact, she knew my mother, who was then uh, then a woman's editor of Picture Post. And um, Hornsey's wife, who knew all of the... She'd had a glamour portrait done of Dennis uh, uh, with his fag drooping and his uh, pilot's helmet on. And Dennis Hornsey in the picture looks so glamorous and the archetype of the uh, of the bomber pilot. Yeah. And yet um, here is this guy who uh, is um, a tragic figure. Uh, so the point is, yeah, it's not that one is saying everybody was like Dennis Hornsey. Um, a lot of them um, displayed greater uh, greater skill, greater courage, greater fortitude, great all sorts of things. So it's not that they were all like Dennis Hornsey. But in order to see the whole picture, in order to put the Gibsons and the Mickey Martins and the Leonard Cheshire's in perspective, yeah. you have to see a lot of the other guys who were bloody terrified. Yeah, 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 yeah no, that's absolutely right. Uh, well, Max, this has been fascinating. I've just got to uh, just press you on one point. Um, yeah. You were saying that you spent five hours with, with Arthur Harris. Um, I, I don't want you to cast judgment on him as a as a wartime leader, but but in j- just in your memory, I mean, what what did you make? Did you find him genial? Um, did you find him gruff? Was he was he tricky or or, or oh did, very, did you... very very gruff? He was uh, he was <laughs> uh, he was he was terribly bitter man for God's sake because he felt that posterity had had been so cruel to him and he felt that he hadn't been recognised as the great war leader and bomber command as the great force in victory that he believed they had been. So there was enormous anger there, but he was a great raconteur and he told me innumerable stories about uh, about, uh, 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 his dealings with Churchill, about his dealings, but there was enormous anger there and I think it was the anger that came across most strongly. And of course, he was very bitter when my book on command was published, and I was very critical of it. Um, that uh, one of the Americans, uh, R. Acre, came over to Britain specifically, and he gave a press conference at Heathrow and announced that he was urging Arthur Harris to sue me uh, for <laughs> my strictures on his uh, on his command. But what I would say about Harris, which I think is very important, stupid people talk now about war crimes and so on. In wars of um, um, existential survival, you need absolute bastards like um, Bomber Harris. Bomber Harris, uh, um, there's a great line of Churchill's, which I've quoted, I think, in All Hell Letters, in which Churchill said of him after the war, he said, Our considerable commander, but there was a certain coarseness about him. And Churchill, I surmised in Bomber Command and later became sure I was right, that although Churchill enormously respected Harris as a, a as a enormously serviceable blunt instrument, he didn't like him. Churchill liked gentlemen like Alexander in Italy, and like he liked people who behaved like proper blokes. And there was a vulgarity about Harris, um, expressed by that remark of his when he said that the British Army would never take tanks seriously until they could be taught to um, to eat hay and shit. And that's a typical <laughs> Harris remark. Um, and, um, and he's said, but you need people like that. And in the same way, another Churchillian remark about Montgomery, when he said to yeah. Violet Bonham Carter, such a pity that our first commander, who appears capable of uh, defeating the Germans on the battlefield, should be an unmitigated cad and bounder. And you need unmitigated cads and bounder. Although the other thing I would say if you want to be in any war, including the Second World War, a really successful admiral or general, 
make damn sure that you take over when your side's starting to win yes. and you are stronger than the other side. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, or, that, or if uh, you're I, not, then do it in an out-of-way place um, where no-one's watching, like Slim well, in Eritrea. Yeah. I, or I've always believed that if Slim, whom I reckon was probably the greatest British commander of the Second World War, if he'd taken over the Desert Army in 1940 or 41, uh, I think he would have failed as surely as yes. the rest of them did. Yeah. So uh, Montgomery... Um, was a considerable professional. But the real thing is he took over when we were... And there's one of my last story for you is of a Polish officer who was attending a staff college lecture in Haifa, because there was then a British staff college in Haifa, yep. in uh, about 1941. And a British general was lecturing them on the principles of victory in battle. And at the end, when he asked for questions, this Polish officer leapt to his feet and said, Sir, you have left out the most important. Be stronger. And this is a great principle. You can be the greatest commander that ever was. But unless you're stronger, your chances of winning are not that wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, listen, good luck with the folio edition. Yes. Um, and uh, Max, thank you so much for coming on. You know, it'd be great to have you on another time. But um, no, it's my pleasure. Um, thank it, you for it, was, me. it was great to see you at We Have Ways Fest. I know everyone really, really loved you, yeah. uh, your talk then. Um, and, and it's great to have you on the podcast today. So thank you. No, thank, well, thank you, so you very much for, much for having me. All the very best, guys. Cheers. Cheerio. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. See you soon.